Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the HypnoDojo, a place of learning for practitioners and students of hypnotherapy. Get your black belts in all things hypnotherapy as we whip into shape your mindset, mastery, and marketing. Relax, enjoy, learn. Here's your sensei, Linda Campbell. Hi, and welcome to the Hypno Dojo. I am Linda Campbell, and I'm excited to talk about what I've got on board for you today. We're going to be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is probably going to be the first of several shows. There's just so much to say about this topic, and in order to be able to address post-traumatic stress with a client, we really need to have some familiarity with how memories are stored and how the body responds to trauma and the various symptoms that a client will present with. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at what PTD, PTDD, PTSD is, the signs, the symptoms, how it manifests, how it shows up, the DSM criteria, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, And we're going to start looking at how PTSD can be addressed using hypnotherapy, but please tune in over the next couple of weeks. Every Friday at 2.30, we're going to be continuing the show, and I've got lots to say about this topic, lots of approaches that we can use. So, first off, what is post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, Well, PTSD results from exposure to an overwhelmingly stressful event or series of events. Usually it's something that is life-threatening. So this could be war or rape or abuse or a natural disaster, car accidents. Uh, It's stressful to anyone. These are the kind of events that any person would find stressful. And they're, again, perceived as potentially life-threatening to yourself or to others. So I don't necessarily... with the D in PTSD, the disorder part, because PTSD is a normal response to an abnormal event. It's adaptive. It's basically your mind and body going, oh my God, this situation is threatening and kicking your hypervigilance, your fight-flight response into high gear so that you have the energy, the adrenaline to protect yourself. So this is what your body is meant to do if you're experiencing or witnessing a life-threatening event. Your body is not meant to be calm at that time. If, you, if I'm sitting here in my room and suddenly somebody bursts in with a gun, I'm supposed to have my heart go up into my chest and my heart start beating more rapidly, heart into my chest. It's already there, heart into my throat. I'm supposed to get rapid heartbeat and sweaty palms. That's my body adapting to this threat so that I can flee from the room or protect myself. The problem with PTSD is the symptoms last long after the event has passed. And I'm going to talk in a little while about how memory is stored uh, in a normal situation versus how it's stored in a traumatic situation so that you can understand why people experience the symptoms that they do. And so we're going to look first at the symptoms, and I'm going to refer here to the DSM criteria. So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and I don't know that I necessarily agree with all of the disorders that are in there, but it does give uh, therapists and practitioners a common language to use to understand what's going on with people. And so there is 
several criteria a person needs to meet in order to have uh, the diagnosis of PTSD. So the first is they need to have some sort of exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. So you can directly experience the traumatic event, so it happens to you. You could witness it in person happening to somebody else, so you don't have to experience the event yourself, but watching somebody else get hit by a car, watching somebody else get beat up, that sort of thing, can cause you post-traumatic stress as well. You can learn that the traumatic event occurred to a close family member or friend. So, for example, you know, finding out that your father got hit by a car or had an accident can create post-traumatic stress for you. So, again, you don't have to be the one experiencing it. You don't have to be at the site. But even just hearing about it can be enough to give you the symptoms. And it, or another option is experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of traumatic events. So this would be the first responder who is every day, day after day after day, being exposed to, uh, you know, trauma in other people, to seeing people in crises, uh, the police officer, the ambulance driver, you get the idea. And so that's the first piece of criterion is you have to be exposed one way or the other to uh, a life-threatening or potentially life-threatening situation. The next criteria is there needs to be presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms associated with the traumatic event beginning after the event occurred. So the things we're looking for here are recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories of the traumatic event. So this is where we're going to get into talking about how memories are formed later. There's a unique thing that happens when somebody is experiencing trauma the event is not stored as a past event, but the mind kind of keeps it ever present as though it's still occurring. And so the people will have distressing memories of the traumatic event that come on over and over and over and can feel as though the event is reoccurring. Another one of these criteria would be reoccurring distressing dreams in which the contents and or affect of the dream are related uh, to the traumatic event. So if you've been raped, you're dreaming of being raped or you're dreaming of somehow being you know, held down or harmed. It may not be the exact event that's replaying in your mind, but there's a common theme. Next, there are dissociative reactions in which the individual feels or acts as if the traumatic event was reoccurring. So when I said earlier, the mind doesn't store it as a past event. It can be as though it's continuing to occur. Uh, there can be intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of the traumatic event. So, for example, I had a client who was in a car accident. It was a dark, rainy night, and uh, she was hit from behind and crashed into a vehicle in front of her and actually went through the windshield of her own vehicle. The impact was that great. And there were several different um, cues that became triggers for her. The color orange, the vehicle that she hit in front of her was one of those kind of coppery orange colored vehicles. And from that point forward, whenever she would see that color orange, she would start to hyperventilate and be, you know, in distress because the mind does not store that event as a past event. It, it doesn't really know. Your subconscious is totally illogical and protective. It doesn't know what it was about that particular event that was threatening, so it kind of grabs all the details, all the elements of the event, and tries to protect you from all of them. 
So the color of the car became a trigger for her. Uh, there was a song playing on the radio, and from that point forward, any time she heard that song playing somewhere, she would start to, again, hyperventilate and have panic attacks because maybe it was the song that was threatening she could no longer drive down that particular road. Uh, she would have adverse reactions when it was a cold, windy, wet night like it was that night. So again, because the subconscious wants to protect you, it, it grabs all of the elements of the original trauma and goes, let's keep you safe from all of these. All of these things are potentially threatening, and people will find themselves having panic reactions or hypervigilant reactions without even really knowing exactly why. The client will often say, it comes on out of the blue. Well, it's not really out of the blue. There's something on an unconscious level that's creating that response. The person just isn't consciously aware of it. So, for example, maybe one of those orange cars drives by and the person doesn't pay attention with their eyes, but out of the corner of their eye, the subconscious is like, oh, my God, that's the orange car and they start feeling themselves um, getting distressed, even though consciously they weren't aware that the car passed by. So there are um, triggers that the people will respond to afterwards. And then there's marked physiological reactions to internal... Oops, I just said that one, sorry. Um, another element would be persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with a traumatic event beginning after the event. Um, so avoidant, avoidance of or efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about the event or the elements associated with the event. So the client who won't drive down that street anymore because it's too triggering is avoiding, right? Avoidance of or efforts to avoid external reminders. So people, places, conversations, activities, objects, situations. So I'm not going to look at the color orange because that's going to bring on, or I'm not going to listen to that song because that's going to bring on distress. Another element of PTSD would be negative alternations in cognitions and mood associated with a traumatic event. So things like inability to remember an important aspect of the traumatic event. So you hear of people who have had some kind of trauma, uh, but it's repressed. They don't consciously recall it. This is one reason why hypnosis is really good for addressing trauma, because even though they may not be able to recall it consciously, those details are still stored away in the subconscious mind. So we can help a person process the things that, that consciously they don't have any recollection of. Uh, persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about oneself, others, or the world. So when we experience trauma, often it changes our worldview. We can be humming along very nicely. Life is going well. Bad things don't happen. And then suddenly, out of the blue, something terrible happens. And now we begin to feel like the world is unsafe. Unpredictable events can occur. I am powerless to stop them. So there can be beliefs that get set up in the moment that just stay with you forever or at least until you come for hypnotherapy and get them treated. Um, I had a client who was, had really quite a bizarre experience. She was shopping in a grocery store, and somebody out in the parking lot did the classic, hit the, um, the gas instead of the brake, and the car went through the window of the grocery store, hit a fridge, which fell on my client. My client got trapped under the fridge. So she started developing, I mean, not only did she feel unsafe in the world, she felt unsafe in places where you should be safe, right? You don't get hit by a fridge, typically, when you're out shopping. But she started developing all of these other fears as well. She couldn't go into parking lots because even a car that is supposed
supposed to be parked can be potentially damaging. She couldn't stand next to anything that was tall, right, a big tall bookshelf or what have you, because there was this belief that things can fall over and trap you, even though intellectually she knew better, because those things had happened to her, she, it changed her belief system and created hypervigilance for those types of situations. There can also be persistent distorted cognitions about the cause or consequences of the traumatic event that lead the individual to blame themselves or to blame other people. So again, somebody who has had some sort of injury or has seen something happen to other people may develop a basic distrust of people, uh, may feel as though they are somehow to blame. If only I hadn't been in this place or if only I hadn't done whatever, maybe this wouldn't have happened. So it can lead to guilt and blame and all of those kinds of emotions as well. Uh, persistent negative emotional state. So again, walking around feeling guilty or feeling shamed or feeling angry or feeling scared all the time because once your subconscious knows, ah, something terrible could happen at any moment, you're going to be keyed up and expecting it to happen all the time. There may be diminished interest or participa participation in significant activities, feelings of dis detachment and estrangement from others, and persistent inability to experience positive emotions. So, you know, it's not okay for me to feel happy or to feel okay because if I let my guard down, I'm not prepared for the next bad thing that's going to happen. The more diagnostic criteria marked alterations in arousal and reactivity. And we're going to be talking a lot about arousal coming up. So arousal is basically your fight-flight system being turned on. If you have experienced a trauma, your subconscious thinks that you need to be hypervigilant so that you can be prepared for the next terrible thing that's going to happen. And so people will experience an increase in their arousal, their hypervigilance. So this can look like irritable behavior, angry outbursts with very little provocation, so a reaction that is uh, out of proportion to what's actually going on. It can look like reckless or self-destructive behavior. Again, hypervigilance, an exaggerated startle response, uh, problems with concentration, with focus, of course, sleep disturbance. <laughs> Your subconscious doesn't know the difference between night and day. If you suddenly now have to be vigilant because bad things can happen, you have to be vigilant at night as well. So people who have had trauma often experience difficulty with sleep. And the duration of this criteria needs to last more than one month and uh, should cause significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So that's how the DSM uh, looks at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and those will be the kinds of symptoms that your client is describing to you. I've had a lot of fascinating uh, case, cases come my way. The woman who had the fridge fall on her. I had a client who was shot at while he was hiking in Peru. Uh, various people who have experienced car accidents, that sort of thing. I had a young lady who was sexually assaulted by her boss. Um, there, so it's unfortunately relatively common uh, for people to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the difficulties with this disorder is it is so impactful to the person, so distressing, that people think they're the only ones, that other people don't experience this. So even just 
talking to the client about how normal this reaction is, how common it is for people to to experience trauma can help to can help the client um, helping them know that they're not alone that this is something that happens so I was mentioning how one of the hallmarks of PTSD is extreme general physical arousal or heightened arousal around triggers. Now, why this occurs is because the nervous system becomes sensitized by an overwhelming trauma, and so general arousal or uh, is elevated and a person can overreact to even small stressors. So we're going to be looking at what does... Uh, over arousal look like what does it look like when a person is in a state of hyper arousal so again there's a lot of different things that the client might report uh, one thing irritability or outbursts of anger so this could be the person who you know has a very short temper they fly off the handle easily um, they're very critical either of themselves or other people they are impatient um, they may tire easily because they're so hypervigilant and being that keyed up is exhausting. So there may be a lot of fatigue or you hear people, chronic fatigue, that sort of thing um, that may show up over time. There may be feelings of shame and frustration uh, of guilt because they can't seem to control their temper. They're so close to the edge. When you've had trauma, okay, imagine there's a scale that goes from zero to 100. And, you know, our regular everyday stressors may be like a three or a seven or a 15. You've got lots of space to, um, to have many different stressors happen before you hit your threshold. When somebody has experienced a trauma, they're now at like 75. So it doesn't take a whole lot on top of that before they feel like they can't handle things. So kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, you know, so this might be the person who you know, starts out the day feeling already a little shaky, already pretty close to the edge, and by noon is having a complete breakdown because their lunch order was incorrect. So really, you know, emotions really close to the surface. We also see a lot of reckless or destructive behavior. This is one of the common themes uh, that we see in people with, PTSD. So there could be things like misuse of alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, other substances. And really, this is just an attempt to relieve the pain. So when we start to work through the traumatic event, oftentimes, whatever substance use is occurring starts to decrease or be eliminated all on its own. People are kind of funny. We like to feel good. We don't like to feel bad. If you're in a constant state of arousal, if your hypervigilance is like through the roof, then you're going to be drawn to whatever substance will either help you to not feel or to feel better in comparison. So we see a lot of misuse of alcohol. I don't start there. I'm not going to take away somebody's way to cope. What I want to do is eliminate the need for that way to cope by focusing on resolving the PTSD. We're also going to see impulsive behaviors. So again, this might be an, another attempt to escape pain. Uh, people with PTSD might be taking impulsive trips or suddenly be absent from work or make sudden changes in their lifestyle. This kind of, you know, maybe if I'm somewhere else, maybe if I'm doing something else, I'll feel better. Of course, everywhere you go, there you are. You can't escape yourself. Uh, one of my clients said to me, that what you don't deal with just waits for you, and I totally agree. There is no amount of compulsive shopping or trip-taking or whatever that's going to resolve the stuff that you need to work through. We're going to see a lot of overcompensation in people with PTSD. 
So if you have an area of your life that has felt out of control, you're going to look for things that you can control. So in order to regain some of that lost control, people with PTSD may become driven for success or achievement or fitness. Um, They may develop obsessive-compulsive behaviors. (laughs) I can't control what's happening out there in the world, but I can certainly make sure everything on my desk is perfectly organized and at a right angle to everything else. So really, again, it's just an adaptive behavior, a way to compensate for something that feels like it's missing or feels like it's off. And then there is uh, a term called repetition compulsion that we will often see in people with PTSD. And I see this with a lot of different clients. So this comes from Freud. Freud observed that people often reenact traumas in an attempt to master and complete them. So, for example, if you had a um, traumatic relationship with a parent, there was a lot of abuse or criticism, you may attract partners who have similar qualities because there's a part of you that is trying to resolve it. So when I see a client who comes into me, this is just as a bit of an aside, um, with uh, unhealthy relationships, I'm often looking at what was their relationship like with their parents? (laughs) What were the parents' relationship like to one another? Because often that client is just repeating a pattern that was never fixed or never resolved when they were younger between themselves and that parent by repeatedly attracting that same type of person over and over and over. Now, one of the things that we see with repetition compulsion uh, would be uh, people who have had trauma going into service work where their job is all about trying to help people in trauma. So combat combat vets who go into police or fire protection or emergency and medical services, so almost as though they're trying to transfer their experience of trauma into something meaningful. They're trying to find some way to, you know, to help the world because they've seen so much destruction. Another example of repetition compulsion would be high-risk behavior. So this is an interesting thing, particularly with clients who have experienced a lot of trauma, ongoing trauma, more than one event. If your system is used to all of this adrenaline because you're constantly in hyper alert, then having a normal, calm life feels boring. It feels like there's something missing. And so because these people are used to having so much adrenaline in their system, they may be drawn toward high-risk behaviors, uh, skydiving, rock climbing, bungee jumping, scuba diving, all of these things that create adrenaline. Or they may be drawn into a high-risk profession, something where they have to live on the edge all the time. Uh, Another example of repetition compulsion would be a woman who's abused as a child and marries an abuser, a person who grew up with um, alcoholism and marries an alcoholic. Uh, Another example of repetition compulsion Uh, somebody who's abused as a child enlisting in the military so that he can do violence against the enemy, like he's trying to get back at the person who harmed him by harming other people. Uh, Another thing that we see in people with PTSD would be deliberate self-injury. So one of the ironies of PTSD is that the victim might further harm themselves past what actually occurred. So this might be things like burning yourself, hitting yourself, cutting, scratching, um, using harsh harsh abrasives on your skin or your scalp, Uh, headbanging, pulling out your eyebrows or pulling out your hair, uh, inserting objects into your body orifices. So 
oftentimes these behaviors that are self-harming are a product of the person having experienced PTSD. And people would say, well, why? They're already in such intense pain. Why would they injure themselves? It doesn't make any sense. Um, I came across an article that talks about the the 16 reasons why people uh, who have experienced PTSD engage in self-injury. So here are some of those reasons. Uh, It's a way to express a pain that can't be verbalized. So if you have been harmed, particularly in a way where you couldn't talk about it, maybe you were pre-verbal, maybe you were a kid, maybe it was a family secret, you weren't allowed to share what was going on, it's almost as though some part of you needs to communicate to the world, I'm in pain. So it's a way to express something that we can't otherwise talk about. Uh, It can be a way to to be believed that something happened to you. Sometimes when people have experienced post-traumatic stress, the event they've gone through is so incomprehensible to other people that other people kind of shut them down or dismiss it, don't want to talk about it. They just don't know what to say. Uh, I had a client who, when she was younger, was drinking with her sister and her sister's boyfriend, and she passed out and woke up to the sister's boyfriend uh, sexually molesting her. The next day, my client told her mom about what had happened, and the mom called in the sister and boyfriend and asked them about it, and they both said, nope, didn't happen, denied it. And after that point, my client developed really obvious um, distressing behavior, self-harm. She was cutting for a while. Uh, She was binge drinking. She was uh, bulimic. And what we discovered in hypnosis was exactly that, that there was some part of her that needed to show that I have been injured, something has happened to me, that she picked up these behaviors as a way of showing some mom or whoever else was observing, look, I'm in pain. I'm clearly, clearly something has occurred or I wouldn't be doing these things to myself. Uh, That self-harm can also be an attempt to convert emotional pain into physical pain If we are in a lot of emotional pain and we don't know how to deal with it, if you can kind of turn that into a a pain that is tangible, then it can more easily be released. Now, paradoxically, paradoxically, uh, pain also relieves pain. So when we're under stress, that triggers natural painkillers in the brain. So when a person is harming themselves, the brain releases endorphins, which actually can make you feel better. So it can be a way to actually experience uh, more comfort. It can also be a way to feel alive. One of the symptoms that I mentioned earlier is dissociation. Uh, Numbing, dissociation, feeling dead are all things that a person reports when they've had PTSD. And so the harming yourself, feeling pain can be a better feeling than feeling nothing at all. It reminds you that you're alive. So it gives you a sensation that is preferable to not feeling anything at all. Another reason people self-harm, it's an attempt to complete the uncompleted. So I mentioned repetition compulsion earlier, how we have this compulsion to re-experience trauma that we've had so that we can somehow resolve it. So when we're injuring ourselves, it can be a way to, to complete that. Uh, there's also another piece here, and this ties into something I want to talk about in the next show, about completing a thwarted behavior. So in the wild, if an animal is being chased by a predator, it's going to have a lot of adrenaline in its body, fight or flight. It's, you know, it's got a lot of adrenaline so that it can run from the predator, or if it has to stay in fight so it can protect itself. 
We are often familiar with fight or flight, but unfamiliar with the third F, which is freeze. If it's impossible to fight or to flee, the third option that an animal or a person will pick is to freeze. So you hear people in trauma who were paralyzed, they were frozen, they couldn't move, they couldn't get themselves out of the situation, which often leads to a lot of guilt and shame that I couldn't do something to protect myself. Anyway, if the animal or person has to choose freeze, they still have all of that adrenaline in in their system. (laughs) An animal, once the predator has passed and it is safe again, will actually lie there and shake. And what it's doing is it's getting all of that adrenaline out of its system. And then it'll just get up and run away as though nothing happened. Now, people don't lay there and shake, right? When passed, uh, we tend to still be paralyzed, frozen. We haven't shaken out that adrenaline in our system. And so sometimes there's a need to complete a behavior that was not completed to shake it off. You know, if we had an aggressor attack us and we needed to push them away and we couldn't, sometimes that pushing them away can be a way to begin the healing process. So there are some people who believe that that some kind of self-harm is actually the beginning of a healing process, completing a behavior that you were unable to complete during the time of the trauma. Now, I'm almost out of time today. There's still so much more I want to say about self-harm. And, of course, I've got tons of things to say about how to resolve PTSD. So please tune in next week. We will carry on with how to help a client who's got post-traumatic stress disorder and understanding exactly what it is and how it shows up. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in. This has been Linda Campbell of the Hypno Dojo. Bye-bye. Okay, take one <laughs> with corrections with Campbell. Get your black belts in all things hypnotherapy and never blood. <laughs>